Today is November 20th, 2020. New York City decides to shut down their school systems again. Nobody knows what's true anymore regarding the results of the election, and progressives step up their calls to erase student loan debt. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and family, to another fantastic episode. Believe it or not, this is the best one that we've done so far, and trust me when I tell you that you are going to love it. We're looking at stuff from the left, and we're looking at stuff from the right. We're looking at the good, we're looking at the bad, and we're looking at the ugly, and we're bringing you all of the best insights here from Split the Difference podcast. Remember, before we even start this episode, we're doing our best try and acknowledge both sides of the aisle, find the truth that lies in the middle. We're doing our best to stay level-headed, we're doing our best to stay reasonable, and we're doing our best to split the difference. We want to have good opinions here that are well-informed. We're not going to judge anybody else for their opinions, but we are going to do our best to have civil discord and come together in unity. That's what we're all about here on Split the Difference podcast. So with all of that having been said, let's jump on in to our story number one. So our first story of the day, New York City decides to shut down schools as COVID explodes across the country. So um, this has been a huge topic over the past day or two. Um for many different news sites and both the left and the right pretty much agree that this is an absolutely terrible decision. So research has shown countless times by now that children, especially under the ages of 10 are normally not the primary carriers and spreaders of the, of this disease. Um, A lot of people are worried because COVID, of course, is increasing, and New York City has a school district. It's the largest in the country with a little over a million kids in it. That's a lot of kids going to school every day, and a lot of people are looking at this, and they're like, yes, of course, it's not good that coronavirus continues to go up, but shutting down the school system is definitely not the way to go about fixing this. And this, I think, is universal across both sides of the aisle, agreeing that kids need to be in schools, not just because they're not super spreaders like we initially thought, and it's not just because they don't normally carry it and give it to a lot of people. It's mainly because of the incredible consequences that happen when you send kids home and they have to learn through e-learning. Not only is it stressful on the teachers themselves, which it is incredibly stressful on the teachers. If you have any friends that teach school or have taught school during this pandemic, then ask them how miserable it probably is teaching all these kids who are working at home. Um, But it's also because it has incredibly detrimental effects on their learning, on their home life, um, especially with low-income kids. Uh, there's been a lot of studies that have come out that about uh, kids during the pandemic having much lower testing scores and not performing nearly as well, and also about the effects that learning um, away from a classroom or e-learning has uh, on, I guess, long-term effects as well as the kids get older and as the kids grow. Um, definitely not good stuff, but um, all of this basically is coming at a time when most of you know Coronavirus is just absolutely exploding across the country. And the CDC now officially has come out um, and said it's not safe to travel during Thanksgiving. It is encouraging people to stay away from traveling on Thanksgiving. Don't go see your families or anything. Um, and there's a lot of different states that are having a lot of different responses as to you know how, go, how to go about basically tackling all this stuff. So um, let's go ahead and hop in right now. Uh, CNN did a little bit of coverage about all the different states and how they're reacting with different restrictions that they're putting in place. 
Philadelphia, they're considering a curfew. Massachusetts, there's already a curfew in place. In New York and Virginia, restaurants and businesses with liquor license must close at 10 p.m. In Jersey, criminal and civil jury trials are now suspended. In Michigan, a new emergency order is in effect. This limits indoor gatherings. Uh, and in Mississippi, there's seven new counties that are now under a mask mandate. And then there's other states with GOP governors, including those who had previously resisted restrictive measures. They are starting to follow science. In Utah, the entire state is now under a mask mandate and casual gatherings are limited to just households there. In North Dakota, after months of resisting, the Republican governor there just did a 180, mandating masks and limiting the size of gatherings. So, um... That's CNN there talking through how some of the different uh, states are going about doing it. Of course, they are attacking all GOP governors. Of course, no Democratic governors have done anything wrong during the pandemic. It's only the good old party. Um, it's Im impressive, to say the least, there, that journalism being done by CNN. Totally unbiased. Um, so let me give a, a few stats here. So as of now, the death toll just in the United States has surpassed 250,000 deaths. As of Tuesday, nearly 77,000 people were hospitalized with the virus in the United States, and I believe that has actually gone up since then. Uh, newly confirmed infections per day in the United States have exploded and are now up over 80% over the past two weeks. Uh, the average, there's, we're averaging somewhere around 160,000 new cases per day, and deaths are averaging about 1,150 per day. Um, that's not more deaths than we saw in April and in May on average. So for the most part, we're seeing treatment is getting better. And that's something that I've talked about a pretty good amount on this podcast so far, but, um, things are not looking good, right? And what you're seeing is a whole, both sides basically just blaming the other side, which is just absolutely standard procedure by now. Um, but we'll get into that here in a little bit. So in Texas, so I, there's a couple things that I found that were actually pretty startling that are very, very different than what we saw earlier this year. So in the Texas border city of El Paso, uh, many of you may know where El Paso is. It's over on the, uh, I believe on the west or, or down towards uh, the border of Texas. So overwhelmed morgues have begun paying jail inmates $2 an hour to help transport the body of virus victims. There are so many dead bodies from coronavirus, supposedly, this is according to Huffington Post, um, that there are literally, they're paying inmates, jail inmates, to transport the bodies to make sure that they aren't, you know, just sitting out anywhere or they're not just staying at the hospitals. I actually saw another video this week where um, the guy was talking about how there are actually refrigerated trucks in Texas, I believe it's in El Paso, um, where they have dead bodies in refrigerated trucks because they literally don't have enough space in morgues because people are dying at such an alarming rate down there. Um, that is not good. So more than 5,400 extra medical personnel have been deployed around Texas by the state alone, um, and you're starting to see this happen more and more across the country. Um, in Kansas, hospitals have been converting spaces like chapels and cafeterias or even parking garages to be able to use for COVID-19 patients. So this is significantly worse than it was earlier this year. If we remember back to earlier this year, there were all these videos and all these pictures of all these nurses and healthcare workers that were picking up and they were going into these large cities or higher impacted areas, areas in order to be able to help out. 
Well, unfortunately, that can't really happen now because coronavirus is all over the country in really high numbers. And we're finally kind of starting to see what it's going to happen when hospitals actually are filled all the way up. You know, if you're looking at I don't know the exact percentage of uh, how many people actually need to be hospitalized due to COVID-19, but if you're talking about uh, 5%, right, of the people that contract the coronavirus need to be hospitalized at one point or another. If you've got 100,000 new cases a day, which right now we're at about 150, right? But if you're say you're at 150,000 new cases a day, that's 7,500 people a day that are going to need to be hospitalized across the country. That is a lot of people, all right? And that's not including the fact that, like, it's going to continue to go up. It's going to continue to rise. So what's going on right now, though, is especially amongst the political elite, everyone's trying to virtue signal here, right? You're seeing this whole thing going back and forth where there's this weird thing that the left is trying to do where they're basically making it seem like all the people that are getting this disease are Republicans and it's all the Republicans' fault. And because they're the Republicans, there's like this like this universal power that is like causing them to contract the coronavirus, like some type of plague that they're getting as a result, as a punishment for how they have acted. Um, it's really kind of weird, honestly. <laughs> There's so many uh, left-leaning media sites. I mean, and even like CNN coming out and basically saying that uh, the Republicans have purposefully tried to put people's lives at risk by not taking the coronavirus seriously. And as a result, they're getting the coronavirus and like they're not wearing their masks. And so that's why they're getting the coronavirus. Chuck Grassley, uh, a congressman, he's a Republican, got COVID within this past week. And they were all saying it's because he didn't care about coronavirus restrictions and uh, he was just ignoring how serious the case cases were but at the same time there's also this weird thing that the right side of the aisle is doing is where they're trying to act like everything's fine and everything's under control right you guys don't need to worry about this like we've got it all under control everything's going to be just fine like neither of those things are correct okay please hear me when i say the virus does not care if you are a republican or if you're a democrat it doesn't. It doesn't check your ballot history to see who you vote for more often, and that's who you it decides to go after. And also, everything is most certainly not fine. Like, the cases are exploding in the United States, and they're not being handled extremely well because we have some of the highest infection rates in the entire developed world. And, of course, there are developed countries, especially in England, you know, where or um, in Europe, I mean to say, where you're starting to see Countries like Germany, where the infections are going up significantly, in France, and in the UK, and I get that, and I hear all that, but it's not like the United States, right? And the United States is is a, is a little bit of a different beast because we are growing much much faster, and we have a much larger population. So this is leading to the markets trembling a lot, stock markets, equity markets, uh, bond markets, everything's moving up and down because nobody's really sure what's going on. A lot of people still think that Biden is going to step in in January and he's going to put in place a lot of lockdowns. Um, so far, Biden has said that he's not going to put in lockdowns. All I can do is trust what he says. Uh, and Anthony Fauci has also come out multiple times and said that he doesn't believe that lockdowns need to be put in place. But we'll have to see when or if Biden gets into office in January. Things may be completely different come January. Uh, things may 
have gotten much, much worse. I personally think that they will continue to get worse because not only is the virus absolutely just ravaging across the country right now, but we still have people that are uh, fighting against the use of mask wearing. Uh, there's still people out there that legitimately believe that the coronavirus is not real. And there's plenty of people that are going to be traveling for the holidays. A lot of people haven't been able to see their families for the entire year because of this coronavirus. And a lot of people are really, really tired of not seeing friends and family. They're ready to move. They're ready to go out and see people, even if that means wearing a mask, even if that means socially distancing while as best they can inside. There's going to be people that are traveling across the country in order to see family. And, you know, when it comes down to it, to each his own, just try your best to be as safe as possible about it. Um, I'm fortunate because I have a lot of my family close by, but I know that there's some people that have to travel all the way across the country in order to be able to see family, and that's a very, very difficult decision to make. So, the good news is, I, I know all of that sounds horrible, but the good news is, both Moderna and Pfizer have finished up with their, like, basically rounds of clinical trials, uh, on both of their vaccines, both of them are showing around a 95% efficacy rate, which means that the virus, uh, the vaccines are about 95% effective at immunizing people against the coronavirus. Awesome news. So they're supposed to be uh, distributing all of that sometime, somewhere around maybe mid-December. We'll have to see when they start manufacturing these things and getting them shipped out. Um, I do believe that they're starting and they're working through getting all of the FDA approval for emergency um, distribution of these vaccines. Um, so if that actually is true and both of them had about, have about a 95% efficacy rate, it means that we'll be able to hit herd immunity much, much faster. It means that we will be able to actually immunize less people and be able to hit herd immunity faster. That's all very good news. And it is absolutely crazy how fast they were able to pump this vaccine out. I mean, in less than a year, these drug companies started putting money and time and effort into trying to find a vaccine for these things for this horrible virus that's just sweeping across the world. And they did it in less than a year. That is, that is so crazy. So anyways, with all of that having been said, let's go ahead and move on into our story number two. So for our second story of the day, nobody knows what's happening with the election right now. Do you know what's happening? No. Do I know exactly what's happening? Not really. We're getting conflicted answers and conflicted messaging from all over the country right now. I mean, it is absolutely awful. So um, within the past few days, we've had people coming out and saying literally the exact opposite thing of what of each other at within like hours of each other. So um, a lot of it centers around uh, really one big story out of Michigan. So we can go ahead and hop in and take a look real quick. This is Fox News reporting on what happened uh, in Wayne County up in Michigan. Fox News alert, the Trump campaign has just put out a statement saying that they are dropping a lawsuit in Michigan. The statement reads this, this morning we are withdrawing our lawsuit in Michigan as a result, a direct result of achieving the relief we sought to stop the election in Wayne County from being prematurely certified before residents can be assured that every legal vote has been counted and every illegal vote has not been counted. All of this, of course, after the, they sought to stop the certification of the election results there in Wayne County, the AP 
AP writes those two Republican canvassers first balked at certifying the vote. That was the big news. They then won praise from President Trump. They reversed course after widespread condemnation. The AP is reporting this, mor this morning that a person familiar with the matter said that the president reached out to those canvassers, their names Monica Palmer, William Hartman, on Tuesday evening after the revised vote to express gratitude for their support. We'll continue to follow that story for you. All right. So what happened in Michigan? Okay. Cause this has been a huge story over the past couple of days and it, I think just so perfectly personifies what is happening right now. So in Michigan on Tuesday, the County election certification board met to uh, basically certify the results of Wayne County in Michigan. This is the County that holds Detroit, huge County, a lot of votes there. Trump lost it by a lot. It pretty much is what came in and really kind of tilted a lot, a big shift um, towards Biden there at the end, because I think there were a lot of mail-in voting there, and it historically is incredibly Democrat, right? So um, there are two Republicans and there's two Democrats on this on this um, uh, election certification board, right? Apparently, they go to vote and they were at a stalemate. Both of the Democrats were like, no, or were like, yes, we should go ahead and certify everything. Everything looks normal. It's within a margin of error. The Republicans were like, no, not all of the precincts are lining up exactly with the way that we want them to. We think that there's still some stuff here that's iffy. We want to be able to continue to look into this. So Trump and the Republicans are like, yes, that's awesome. That's exactly what we wanted to hear. This is what, you know, this is what we've been screaming this whole time. There's fraud. There's weird stuff going on. And we want to be able to get in, research it, and figure out what's happening. Well, within a couple hours, they then turn around and everything comes out that they did vote to actually certify all the votes. And, um, now it's being sent into the attorney general's office and all that stuff to be able to certify that Wayne County is done. So the board ended up voting unanimously to certify the Wayne County vote. Everything's fine. Everything's done. Well, then the next day, the two Republicans on the board <laughs> come out and say that they were coerced into voting that way. They both signed sworn affidavits that they were coerced and threatened into certifying everything. And now, legally, this means pretty much nothing but it has all the Republicans saying, well, the Democrats are coming in and forcing all these, you know, forcing these county certification boards to certify, uh, you know, counties votes. I mean, it's like stuff's just never going to end. So um, all this, mind you, is over discrepancies of, I mean, literally like a vote or like one to four votes in each precinct. So basically what happens is they go into the precincts. And they look at the signatures of people that have people that have come in and signed their name and the actual number of votes that they have and how those people voted and whatnot. Well, in each of the precincts, it is very, very normal to see between like one and 10 differences between those two numbers because maybe somebody came in and they signed, right, you know, signed before they were going to vote and then they get in there. They're like, you know what? Forget this. It's taking way too long. I'm leaving. Well, I'm sure that that happens, especially when you've got thousands upon thousands of people going through a precinct to vote. It's going to happen. So normally between about a 1 to 10 vote difference, totally normal. Almost every single one of the precincts that they've looked at in Wayne County has between a 1 to 4 vote difference. Totally normal. Nothing crazy. Nothing beyond the margin of error that didn't get approved in 2016 and 2018. You know, it's totally normal. Nothing crazy has been going on. 
So um, this is all, you know, of course, the Republicans and Trump and everybody's jumping up and down saying that this is a clear example of fraud because these people are now swearing that they were threatened for their life in order to be able to actually certify Wayne County. And Wayne County was overwhelmingly Democrat. So now this is, you know, giving Trump extra fuel. He's all over Twitter even more. Um, he's also sought to uh, actually nullify the election in Pennsylvania completely, the vote in Pennsylvania completely. He has literally put in a case arguing that the vote in Pennsylvania should not be certified as a whole. And it's an honestly laughable attempt because it's like he's not actually been able to prove anything, right? So all of this is having some real life consequences, okay? Reuters came out with a poll earlier this week that said that over half of Republicans believe that Trump was unfair, unfairly lost the election. Over half of Republicans believe that there was nefarious things that went down, and as a result, Biden stole the election from Donald Trump. Over 50%. That is a lot of people. That's not good. Um, that is Trump purposefully sowing discord in our election process in the United States. That is not a good thing, especially when he has he is yet to be able to prove fraud anywhere yet. There's been all these conspiracy theories that have been coming around. You know, spokespeople for his campaign have come out and have been like, "We've got the cr we're going to release the Kraken. Like we're going to come out, we're going to release all this fraud, and we're going to show you where it where, where it was happening, and we're going to win it in the courts." They haven't won one thing in the courts. They haven't proven one thing. And all of these people, all of everything, all these states are actually coming together and they have to get all their votes certified and done within like the next week or so. So that's the good news. Hopefully it'll all be done in the next week or so. But bottom line is Trump can't get through and pull out a lot of votes here within the next week, maybe a week and a half. Trump lost, okay? All of it will be over, but Biden won, and Trump is going to have to go ahead and just concede the election. He should have already done it, but whatever. Not going to happen until Trump finally is going to just let it, let it all go. So, with all of that having been said, let's move on into our story number three. So, for our third story of the day, the progressives are calling evermore for erasing all student loan debt. So this has been a staple of the progressives for a long time, uh, from Bernie Sanders to Ilhan Omar to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, if you remember back like last year or so, AOC famously sat in Congress and right before she was talking, she was like, um, excuse me, excuse me, please. And she's like looking at her phone and she's like, sorry, I just had to uh, pay down some of my student loan debt. And she like looks around a little bit and she's like, I, AOC, still have student loan debt. And this is how much it is. And it was like $19,000. And she like made a big theatrical thing about it. And all the Democrats were like, oh, wow, gosh, she's so great. Although I don't see how that helps her argument all that much because she is a sitting member of Congress and she's like 29 years old. She graduated from college like seven or eight years ago. She's making like 175 grand hiking Capitol Hill every day. So obviously her education was a great investment. But anyways, uh, progressives are now saying that relieving student loan debt is going to put more money into pe people's pockets right when they need it, thus helping the economy. Sounds decent at face value, right? I'm going to argue no, that's a terrible idea. Anyways, people, basically everyone loves the, uh, the executive branch having a lot of power. 
if you're on if you're a far left progressive and so what they're saying is if they can't get it through congress because they haven't been able to get something like that through congress even with the heroes act which they're also pushing as a you know means by which to be able to get some student loan easing passed through well if they're not able to get it through the heroes act or if they're not able to get it passed through legislation well then joe biden when he gets into the presidency obviously should just cram it all through th- the executive branch right because everybody loves having a lot of power in the executive branch when your party's the one that's in charge, of course. So let's do a little bit of history here. Everybody loves history. So student loans initially became a pretty big thing in the late 50s to early 60s. Before that, higher education, by and large, was actually pretty cheap, okay? You could, and even up through the 50s and 60s, you could work a part-time job while you were in school and pay for school. I remember talking to my granddad about it, and he was like, yeah, I paid for pretty much all of my tuition at Wake Forest for a year for about $1,000, okay? And back then, $1,000, yes, was a decent amount of money, but like, that's that wasn't anything crazy. Like, he could work, and he could work throughout the year and be able to pay that off. Um, that obviously started to change. So before the 60s, very, it was much less expensive. Once you hit the 60s, something, you know, something started to shift. Well, what was it? Well, government came through and they were like, higher education is a very good thing. So we want to be able to encourage people to try and get higher education. So in order to do that, Congress passed Sally May. Many of you have probably heard of like Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae. Well, Sally May is basically the feds, the federal government, ensuring or guaranteeing student loans that they will be paid back. So this does really this really did about four things. First, it got a lot more people to go to college. Can't deny that. Absolutely true. The United States has one of the highest upper education, higher education rates in the entire world. Uh, we have very, very good colleges for the most part. And uh, before that, before the 60s and especially the 70s, it was not nearly as common for people to actually go into college and universities and higher education. Second, the colleges no longer had to worry about whether or not they were going to get paid. So the prices boomed. I mean, on average, every single year since around the 60s or 70s, college tuition prices have increased by 6% a year. That is a conservative, conservative annual rate of increase of 6% every single year. That's on pay that is way blows out of water the inflation rate, right? Like inflation normally you're going to you're going to account for inflation that's going to be about 2%, maximum 4% a year, way outpaced inflation and cost of living. Third, taxes had to be increased and money had to be moved around to make sure that it could be paid for. Of course, like you can't have the government just say, "Hey, we're going to be we're going to back all of these uh loans and everything for students, but not actually have a way to pay for it. And fourth, the value of higher education decreased because so many more people were getting it. And honestly, the value of it tended to go down because students now were having all of it basically backed by the government. So in classic fashion, the United States didn't totally socialize higher education like we have with lower education or like maybe Europe has. But we also didn't allow the totally free market to actively work in it either. So we just got the the worst of both worlds, right? And we're cramming it together. And now everybody's looking around and they're like, this is not good. We've got like almost $2 trillion, which is somewhere around 7 to 8% of our GDP, uh, all wrapped up in student loans. Not good. 
So non-progressives, the answer for this is a call for the government to step in and fix the problem that it created about 60 years ago by canceling student loan debt completely. Personally, I think that is a terrible idea. Let me tell you why. Canceling student loan debt completely would totally let these universities and colleges off the hook for providing a lesser value than they actually were delivering. Okay, it totally lets these universities off the hook. I mean, they are charging inordinate amounts of money for you to be able to go and actually get an education, a four-year education or a master's degree. I mean, even if it's a state school, it costs so much money for you to be able to go and get a college degree. I totally agree with the sentiment that right now we have a huge problem and something needs to be done. I think the progressives absolutely have that part right. Okay, but... Charging the taxpayer for it is not the way to be able to solve this problem. I think that if we decide to cancel a large amount of debt for students, then we have to start over afterwards and basically rethink the what's going on. Because if we don't, prices will continue to climb and we're going to be in the exact same position that we were in right, we're in right now, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now. So personally, I think that we, this needs to be tackled in a few parts. First, I think that there needs to be created a government-mandated system and database for all of these universities to have to publish the median income of their students for each major for the 10 years after they leave that university or college, okay? So the idea behind this is every single university has to post on their website, this is the median income that you can expect to try and make once you graduate from our university from this department, the business school, or from our medical school, or from getting a law degree here, or from graduating uh, in our journalism school, whatever it may be, they are required to actually be able to prove that they have done the research to figure out what the median income of their students are, and they are required to post it on their websites. This one would give a ton of transparency for all students applying to colleges for real-life expectations of how their investment in higher education would play out. But two, it would hold these universities accountable for what they're actually getting and feeding to these students, right? If the students are not actually you know, earning what they're, what they could be earning based upon how much, all the money that they're investing in their education, then the investment isn't worth it, right? If you're paying $65,000 a year to go to Harvard, but you leave making $75,000 a year, that's not worth it at all. You may be able to go to a different university where you pay much less money, but walk out with a somewhat equitable uh, median income. Second, I think that we should tie repayment of these loans to the universities themselves. So in other words, if a university is going to say, well, it costs you $40,000 a year to come here, then you say, all right, well, then you're going to have to pay for 20 grand of that. If you think that this student is someone that's going to come in and make your university better, you're going to be able to invest in this student. They're going to invest in you. you. Why don't you guys split the cost right down the middle? Okay. Um, in other words, I would force the tuition of the universities to go down a good bit immediately, and then things would slowly but surely start to equal out as universities either A, figured out ways to cut costs, or students decided, you know what, I'm not going to go there because this university just won't give me as much money as other universities may. So lastly, I think we need to re actually reduce the amount of money that the government is covering higher education. Instead, take the money that would be going into covering all of these loans to these exorbitantly expensive universities 
and start putting it into other different levels of education and secondary education like associate's degrees uh, that may be beneficial to people that don't want to spend the $70,000 to go uh, for a year to Harvard and instead would rather get their associate's degree and, you know, make decent money when they get out of school, but, you know, not have to spend all the crazy amount of money. I understand the sentiment something that something has to be done with the student debt crisis. Totally get that. But... Canceling all student loan debt lets universities off the hook in a way that is not beneficial for how the price will continue to grow over the next years as a result of those universities not being on the hook. Okay, The answer is not to just pay for everything by the government. The answer is to hopefully create and incentivize those universities to have lower costs but also produce the best product. And that's you know, enabling students to be able to make those decisions themselves and have all the necessary information and transparency that they need in order to be able to make those decisions. So with all that being said, let's move on in to the last portion of our show, something that made me smile. So something that made me smile this week is actually, I ended up being on another podcast yesterday that I thoroughly enjoyed. It was a bunch of fun. It was actually a guy that is out of Singapore, goes by PJ, super nice guy, but the name of the podcast is called Pajamas Pillow Talk. Uh, we sat down and we talked through politics in the United States. I talked a little bit about my background, what it was like growing up, where I did, uh, why I have some of the views that I do. Talked about some of my favorite politicians and maybe politicians that I didn't think were so great. And we had a good time just chatting back and forth. Um, as soon as I have that podcast available, I will make sure to distribute it to all of my listeners so that they can have a good time listening to me on a different platform other than me talking about random news stories of the day and have a little bit of a different environment. So with all of that, that is the show. Thank you so much for tuning in and for checking us out. Again, always remember to keep level-headed, always remember to stay reasonable, and always remember to split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.